Hi, welcome to Better Read Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about A Passage to India, which is E.M. Forster's 1924 novel about an Indian Muslim doctor who is falsely accused of attempting to rape an English woman in a series of caves. Yes. So, yeah, I know that that's – we'll yeah. get to it. We will. I mean, I was even even the way we're describing this. It's it's so uh, it's very ambiguous and intentionally so, and in all kinds of fucked up ways. So um, it's a uh, there's a there's a nice little elision. Yeah. Anyway, so why a passage to India? So I was thinking about this. I've been biased against E.M. Forster ever since my parents made me watch the film version of A Room with a View when I was like six. Uh, <laughs> which and I'm sure it's a great film, but again, I was I was I was six. Um, you know, this was back a foundational in the era. trauma. It was. It was. <laughs> this was back in the era of the VCR, and you only had like one back in my day, one VCR, and that's what mom and dad wanted to watch, and I wanted to yeah. be in the room. But so I figured, hey, it's been oh, thir- almost thirty five years. Time, <laughs> let's you know, give, uh, you know, g- g- give him a try. Uh, yeah. Anyway, and I've wanted to read this novel for a long time because it is a super important object to a couple of my academic interests, certainly post colonial studies, uh, but also people who work on gender have had a lot of you know, things to say about it, a lot of really smart things to say about it. And I have to say, I am legit unsure as to what I actually think about this novel, having, having read it now. I started out really liking it. You know, it begins quite critical of British officials and the racism of the British Empire. Dr. Aziz is a compelling and charismatic character. Um, you know, the language is often beautiful prose, but then the very ambiguously described attempted rape, like what the fuck? And I mean, seriously, what the fuck? Like, what are we supposed to do with the ambiguity around that? Just the kind of general grossness of it. You know, we have to be tracking both race and gender, uh, among other things, as we read that scene in its aftermath. But like, what does the novel actually think it's doing along any of those axes? I'm not 100% sure. Elsewhere, Forrester seems to be making some really nuanced claims about cultural practice and belief and misinterpretation, or how white imperialists perpetually misinterpret the colonized um, in support of racist discourse. And, and you know, so we've got that. But then Forrester seems to slide into the kind of essentialism about the unknowable East or like the passionate Easterner slash Oriental other. And I so I guess my suspicion is we've got a prime example of liberal imperialism here, but one that does have a lot of interesting tensions. And I, I can't wait to talk through some of that with you guys. Oh, yeah. I don't mean liberal imperialism is the best because it's the worst, but <laughs> best to think about. It is. It really is. Okay, so I I read this in high school. Like I I'm not even sure why, but I remember really liking it. I think cuz at the time I read it as like quotes not racist, which mm. okay, fine, which is what allowed me to enjoy it. That's like not a good reason, but it does not matter because the tastes of a 17-year-old have passed the statutes of limitation. (laughs) Uh, Mercifully so, yes. I mean, I really think it's like six years, because when you're 17, you you just like what you like. But it's been 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I had better taste in novels at 22 than at 17. No, absolutely. I I still have no taste. (laughs) But it's what we love about you. (laughs) <laughs> except you taught me that moby dick is cool and good and it is yeah. 
Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I liked Ian Forster a lot in high school, which is like a weird thing about me. Like, that's just a weird thing I like. But I wanted to read it because I knew like my memory of it wouldn't really have been interesting. And it's like one of those, it's like what Tristan said. It's like one of those books that's really important to literature and like cultural studies. And I think that's good. This also sort of falls at a really interesting moment in British literary history because a lot of people are doing this, you know, high modernism. And this book is not doing that really. So that's interesting because in academia, we have all these like slightly artificial rules about like periodization and style and technique. And this book puts some pressure on those rules. But there's also like the way that it fits in really well with this like early 20th century conversation about the colonial project. And I think it's like squarely in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Because like, honestly, anyone but the stone cold dummy knows that like the sun is gonna set on the british empire (laughs) (laughs) they sure pretended otherwise though it's like oh yeah the the world war in which our our uh inbred moronic monarchs almost killed each it's all over now and we're back to the way things were of course right totally yeah that was like a thing that people thought would be okay i mean some people like not smart people Well, it's yeah. never gone wrong before, so I don't, th- you know. Totally. No one has ever seemed bothered by it. Uh, yeah. yeah. <sighs> okay, so like having reread it, I am I think there's all this cool stuff happening, but I'm like, I was struck. We're not, I don't think going to talk about this, but I was really struck by the sort of high pitch of anxiety that permeates this, both between individual characters, but also like it feels atmospherically anxious to me and that. I think is interesting. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And and I guess I, one thing I am curious to talk about there is the degree to which like it is just atmosphere, you know, like the the the, the, yeah. the, the problems and, and violence as a resistance to empire are just like oh, an unfortunate circumstance one finds themselves in rather than yeah. Anyway, so we'll we'll get to mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, and it's an open question for me. It's like is the we I'm not sure what's causing it, or if it's just it's also this degree of like white anxiety. Yeah, oh, that's absolutely. one tiny thread in like what I think of as being like this much bigger cloth. Yeah. The anxiety piece comes out ambiently and in the atmosphere, and also it comes out of the mouths of characters who are like, I don't think I'm very special, actually. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like tons of weird, like, actually people saying, I I feel anxious about this. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so, Katie, why did you want to read it? Well, I bought this book long ago to prepare for the GRV literature exam. Didn't touch it. So The only book oh, I bought for that was uh, Paradise Lost. <laughs> Go back. Well, you, you win then. Because um, that's a... <laughs> Do I? <laughs> yes, Paradise Lost is fantastic. Oh, no, I totally agree. But like, it didn't help me to read it nearly so much as looking at my college notes yeah, on no, Samuel yeah. Johnson. Yes, right. No, yes, re- reading a large work of literature is not the way to prepare for that exam. Yeah. To all those listening out there, about to take the GRE subject. Well, which is why I had, which is why I didn't read it because <laughs> I, I, I found it was a fool's errand to do so. But I was excited to 
return to it. It's, you know, it's been on my to-do list and uh, I like to be a, a success child and, you know, check things off. <laughs> a doer so, of things. A doer of things. And so I was looking forward to talking about uh, the dipshittery of Empire, of course. I mean, who doesn't want to who doesn't want to do that? I do feel duty bound in this moment, though, to to just take some time at the top and talk about a very funny breakup scene that we probably <laughs> won't get to talk too much about, but that I have been referring to just by myself as the great British break off. And <laughs> <laughs> what happens in it is basically these two assholes sit under a tree and the lady asshole says, I don't want to marry you. And the guy says, uh, uh, in, in, I do say, indeed, rather. Uh, I, did. <laughs> I, could, I, well, I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't possibly. Uh, <laughs> uh, my dear girl, don't bother yourself about it. I'm st- I'm sticking a pin into my thigh to not feel the pain. So anyway, uh, after he does that, then the lady says. But, you know, like, let's talk about it. I was feeling like I need some compliments and maybe a romantic argument as I uh, make a beeline for the exit. How do you feel, guys? Like, uh, well, you know, technically we never were engaged. And he just, like, gnaws on his knuckle and pretends to polish his monocle to hide the tears. And then and then they start debating what type of bird is sitting in the tree above them. Oh, yeah. And they're like, we're definitely going to be friends. And I agree. I If anyone can stay friends after a breakup, it's these two, what is that Don't. motherfucking bird ass individuals? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so that's the standout from the first book, which is my favorite. Uh, Tristan will get into this in the summary, but this is broken up into three parts. And... I found I would did some archival work in preparation for this episode, and I uh, I found some rejected chapter titles from the first book uh, that I'd like to share. This is an exclusive, uh, better read than dead podcast exclusive. Um, <laughs> the rejected dive. chapter titles were so one is um India is too sharp for my foot. Um, <laughs> yep, it's too sharp for my yep. foot. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I love jolly old England because the bugs know the difference between the indoors and the outdoors. <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah, for some people. Sometimes, my good lad, trying not to be racist is the most racist thing of, of all. Oh, that, <laughs> that's a, that's a theme. That's yeah. a theme in this book. Yeah. <laughs> uh. um, rivers. Some are good and some are bad. Discuss. And number five is um. So this is a more descriptive title. Some guy is looking everywhere for a long chair. This is a real thing. He needed a yeah. chair. <laughs> this is the part we need the long enough chair to relax in. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's um, that's scholarship, friends. That's thank that's, you. Um, you're welcome. So today we are going to be talking about desire and sexuality. We're going to be talking about gender politics. We're going to talk about kinds of misreading and misinterpretation, religious, racial, cultural. And of course, the overarching theme is uh, liberal imperialism. So Tristan, will you summarize this book for us? Okay. So A Passage to India is set largely, uh, the, fir- the first two parts of the, of the three, in the fictional city of Ch- uh, Chandrapur, 
um, which is somewhere in northeastern India, probably in Bihar, uh, which we know since the novels Marabar Caves are, are modeled on Bihar's uh, Barabar Caves, um, which are, are you know the not Marabar Caves are described very much like these sort of real life things. So if you're you know not that familiar with a map, just general terms of map of India, we're a lot closer to Kolkata than we are uh, to Mumbai, which is like the other and you know particularly and Bombay in this era, the big uh, the big sort of city of the kind of British India. So no year is specified, but we know it's uh, supposed to be pretty contemporaneous with when Forster was finishing it. Uh, so the 1920s, post World War One solidly in the british raj direct british rule of india but you know as megan said also when that imperial presence is starting to come under sustained pressure and you don't have to be a genius to see that this is not going to hold together for for much longer um you know gandhi uh was imprisoned right around this time for some of his kind of uh you know earlier and earlier anti-colonial efforts in india and the book does address rather uncomfortably and I think sort of bewilderedly the growing Indian nationalist movements uh, of, of the time and, and, and anti-colonial sentiment. Um, although how it takes those on, I think, is a really important question and very fraught and weird. So our main character is Dr. Aziz, uh, a Muslim doctor who works for the British government. His boss is this racist asshole named Major Callender, uh, who is this, the civil surgeon is his title. And I think it's important to note that Aziz is very much presented as a character straddling worlds. Uh, he works for the British. He practices Western medicine for much of the novel. He's not overtly anti-colonialist, although I think throughout he is you know, pretty attuned to like angered by, rightly so, Brit- British racism. But you know, he, he maintains friendships with British agents. At the same time, though, he's he's depicted as, quote, Eastern in the book's terms, you know, very like orientalized uh, in uh, that kind of that discourse. He's a romantic. He's somewhat given to whims. He recites poetry in Persian, Urdu and uh, and Arabic. So if you've read Edward Said, you kind of know where where uh, where how this is taking shape. Um, he takes Islam quite seriously, but it's it, it's described as being more of like a historical and cultural belonging to him than a strictly theological matter. Uh, so there's there, there's this one quote, Islam, an attitude towards life, both exquisite and durable, where his body and thoughts found their home. You know, also, it seems inf- important that uh, to me that Forster gives us a Muslim character rather than, for instance, a Hindu. Uh, this is a point that Edward Said and many others have, have made. But, um, you know, Islam seems kind of foreign and exoticized in this novel for sure, but also like closer to European religions than Hinduism, which I think Forrester always presents as kind of inscrutable and sort of beyond the imperial can. Like Aziz and his sort of religion is like knowable in a way that I think the novel wants to not really do that with Hinduism. Um, I mean, the like most blunt duh way, is that because it's Abrahamic? Uh, yes, I mean, I think yes, I think that I think that, right that it that it, as one of the Abrahamic religions, it sort of fits into kind of a narrative about like what religion is in a way that it, that 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 Hinduism feels distant. Um, but I also just think that it's like every Hindu character in this novel is either 
like inscrutable, like Professor uh, uh, Godbolet, who just you know who who's like presented as like his philosophy, uh, like just gives him reactions to things that don't track with others. Like he like the the attempted rape scene, he has this very sort of like you know fielding like almost kind of comes to blows with him because because uh, Godbolet's reaction is just so. Um, not what's expected, and but and and you know Aziz is very hostile to Hindu uh, doctors and other people, um, you know other Hindus, and it's just, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I did get the sense that Aziz's Muslim community feels to the novel like more knowable or proximate than Hindus are, and I mean that is of course not my claim. That's just I'm saying that that seems to be how Forrester is kind of presenting this world. Oh, I think that's totally right. I mean, there's moments where like Aziz has these sort of like they're not they're thoughts that are sort of utterances in his point of view where he says things like there is no God but God, which is like fucking, you know, Ten Commandments shit. So it's like completely recognizable, um, even if the religion is absolutely like orientalized. That's not the mm-hmm. same as the way that Hinduism is presented. Mm-hmm. It's also pre- to be to be interested in in Hinduism is presented as a woman's endeavor too. Like oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a big part of I think um the that's that's what the novel's doing. Like no. at the you know this this comes up a bunch. No, you're right. Like uh, Mrs. Morin uh, and and uh, Miss Quest did ask Godbelay directly to talk about reincarnation, and no male character asks him shit. <laughs> you know, yeah, they just yeah, yeah. so that that is, yeah, that's a good point. I and and you're absolutely right. I just I guess I hadn't registered that. Uh, okay, so the beginning of the novel, the first of these three long sections, is entitled Mosque, and. We start with Aziz hanging out with his friends, you know, some some other Muslim guys. Uh, when he gets this order by uh, dispatch, essentially from from Major Calendar to meet him at Calendar's house, and he has all these problems getting there. He has a bad a tire on his bike, so he has to hire a tonga, which is this kind of small horse drawn carriage. And Calendar is, of course, gone by the time he arrives. Then these jackass white women commandeer the Tonga, like they're they just hop in and Aziz says to the driver, Yeah, okay, take these assholes wherever they want to go, I'll pay you later. So he's kind of stuck on the opposite side of town and you know is trying to kill time. So he and it's at nighttime. Uh so he goes to sit in an empty mosque. And while he's there, uh, he sees another white woman, and this kind of startles him. Uh, he's not expecting anyone else to be there, and certainly not a European. And he gets mad because he he assumes that she hasn't removed her shoes, um, you know, which given the kind of like sort of cultural oblis- obliviousness and chauvinism of every English person in this novel is not is not a bad bet. Yeah, not um, a weird thing that they count as part at all. No, um, but she actually has, and she's like really apologetic about being there, um, and almost immediately, and I think very interestingly, and somewhat, yeah, what's what, this is interesting? Yeah, what, what what do we make of this? Aziz just takes to her like from the start. Her name is Mrs. Moore, and she's in India traveling with uh, Adela Quested. I, I learned from watching the film version that Adela is how <laughs> English pronounce Adela. Um, so uh, Miss Quested, Adela, is, uh, is, is, her, uh, is Mrs. Moore's dipshit uh, son's fiance. And yeah, again, just- Boy, the, is he a dipshit. He is a huge dipshit. <laughs> Although, as Katie says, that. fiance, mm, sort of. Yeah, I mean, you know, yes. Yes, uh, right. <laughs> and yeah, like again, the intensity and speed with which Aziz takes to Mrs. Moore and, and vice versa is is somewhat startling. 
So it turns out she's in the mosque because she's, you know, was said, watching this god awful play, Cousin Kate, that a bunch of British officials and their spouses are putting on to amuse themselves. So, like, amateur theater at a racist club. Like, ooh, good, yeah. good die, right? Um, Understand this, why this- she bounced. <laughs> The sexiest thing is to to show a play about a cousin because that's the only person who you'd want to fuck. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yes, yeah, but you can if you can start going far outside that. You don't you don't know what sort of racial categories you're starting to make for us, right? Yes. Uh, the American incest uh, uh, directive, right? But um, oh, it's yeah. not like the British are so great about like mm, spreading the you know like <laughs> yeah. spreading the genes apart. No, absolutely, no, absolutely. I, I just I, I feel like in in Britain uh, you have the racist incest part also coming up against a, a an even older classist incest part, whereas in the U.S. Yeah, Aristo like, bullshit. Yes, in the U.S. it is like prime one hundred percent racial panic. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so Aziz and, and 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 Mrs. Moore, they just start talking shit about the British authorities. Mrs. Moore tells Aziz her life story and, you know, very simpatico. Uh, and, and at one point, uh, so we have this bit between the two of them. Aziz tells her, you understand me. You know what others feel. Oh, if others, meaning, of course, other English people, resembled you. Rather surprised, she replied, I don't think I understand people very well. I only know whether I like or dislike them. And then Aziz replies, then you are an Oriental. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, he does this a couple other times to describe people, white people as Orientals, and it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, no, it is. It is. Usually um, they're related to Mrs. Moore, in, statistically, if we talk yeah. all, all, yeah. all of them. I think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, so yeah, there is some, there is something like marked as like special about her in, in some uh, interesting ways. Okay, so much of the rest of the first section concerns Aziz getting pulled sort of further and further into Mrs. Moore's orbit. Both Adela and she are put off by British racism, although I'd say mildly, like it, they're you know being uncomfortable with it manifests more in annoyed comments than anything else. But you know they they want to see India and meet Indians. Uh, and, so wait, and we, I'm I'm not like contradicting you at all. But isn't it isn't it Fielding who at the end says to Adela that she wants to see India, but she doesn't want to meet Indians? Yes, he does. Yes, that's right. If Fielding does say that at one point, I'm just saying that at this point, both this is something that both of them say that they you know they they don't want to just be in the club. They want to like meet meet Indian people and kind of you know actually like quote unquote see the country. Um, it's this although, totally like persistent you know white traveler in the global south where they're like where's the real india yeah exactly and and i feel like that the sort of the the very warranted skepticism that you just laid out there i think the novel also does have that skepticism oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, at least yeah, to an extent so yeah that the, like you're you're trying you're saying that you want to be different than the imperialist or be closer to, but to the, you know, to the local population, but that there is still kind of an embedded sort of like chauvinism and racism within that. Right. And, and, oh, and fetishism too. And fetishism. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like the authentic. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> so, yeah. So we also learned that, uh, Adela isn't that keen on Ronnie Heslop, uh, her, her fiance and the local magistrate. Why wouldn't um, she be He's so sexy? Uh, yeah, he is. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I will say like this, the, <laughs> is to uh adela's credit because he is a completely useless racist little fuck just an absolutely insufferable shit um just a tool and and he, again he is miss is more son uh she remarried and has a couple other kids that's why her, her name is not heslop ronnie is like the british empire distilled into one etonian jerk off i think you know 
but yeah, so so uh, Adela and Ronnie sort of reconcile after they get into this minor car accident um, and get sort of vaguely horny for each other because their knees like touched when the car hit the rail. Um, it's like what's that thing called where it's like uh, it's not like terror fucking, but there's some version of like oh we survived this thing and so now I'm like horny about it. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Danger, even though I mean, no one was hurt. It's a very minor accident, and yes, it seems like their knees rubbed against each other, and then it's like, oh, we're we're hot again. Um, We we both have knees that can rub (laughs) against each other. so this same section, uh, Aziz meets Cyril Fielding, who is the principal of the local government school, uh, and he develops a quick and intense friendship with this guy. And it's definitely bordering on the almost explicitly homoerotic at times. It is very, very homosocial for sure. An example of this, at one point, Aziz is sick and Fielding comes to visit him. And Aziz, uh, and he's only met him a couple times at this point, shows him a picture of his wife who had died giving birth to, um, to their son. Um, you know, which is obviously a very intimate gesture. And, and Aziz tells, tells Fielding, you are the first Englishman she has ever come before. Now put the photograph away. Oh, wow. uh, he, Fielding, was astonished as a traveler who suddenly sees between the stones of the desert flowers. The flowers had been there all the time, but suddenly he sees them. He tried to look at the photograph, but in itself, it was just a woman and sorry facing the world. He muttered, really, I don't know why you pay me this great a compliment, Aziz, but I do appreciate it. Aziz replies, oh, it's nothing. She was not a highly educated woman or even beautiful, but put it away. You would have seen her, so why should you not see her photograph? Fielding, you would have allowed me to see her? Aziz, why not? I believe in the Purda, but I should have told you her. I should have told her you were my brother and she would have seen you. All men are brothers, and as soon as one behaves as such, he may see my wife. And like, I wanted to read that bit just both for what the novel does with this kind of orientalized idea of the hidden Eastern woman, um, you know, very into like the Purda, that the, there's the idea that like, uh, you know, Muslim women and Hindu women are not visible in the way that European women allegedly are, you know, even in an era when they're barred from almost all spheres of public life. Um, but, uh, but, but also just like kind of how homosocial and homosexual desire, and I am thinking of Eve Savage here for sure, gets mediated through a woman in this novel who is either present or, or not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the erotics keep getting like re-triangulated through different women. Yes, totally, totally. Okay, I'm going to try to be uh, sort of quick with the rest, including the major crisis. But I did think we should just lay out a, a few um, uh, kind of the big themes of the book on the table first. Um, but so now we're in part two, which is called Caves. So Aziz gets sort of drafted by Mrs. Moore and Miss Quested to lead them t- on this trip to the Marabar Caves. Uh, and there are these carved caves that are in this really ancient geological fig- feature outside of town. Aziz isn't super into it. For one thing, he doesn't really like Miss Quested, um, and he doesn't know shit about the caves at all. <laughs> like, uh, right? He also thinks they're going to be great, but he's never been there. Yeah, he, I, the first time he's like having tea with uh, with Adela and Mrs. Moore and and Fielding, he like very excitedly bursts out. Uh, well, because they they like um, this this other sort of Indian family had like invited them to like under under very kind of awkward social conditions invited them to come see their house and then like totally did <laughs> totally bailed on them and so they're kind of like you know like oh what happened um, and so Aziz is like oh you must come to my house and then they're like okay when and he's like oh shit I don't like my, you know, my house is a mess <laughs> yeah. he's like yeah oh let's do this this trip to the cave. And and he, you know, 
kind of as this like sort of not entirely serious gesture, but that they are like, oh yes, let's do that. And then he's like, oh fuck, I gotta make this happen. You know. <laughs> so and he's to spend like eleven jillion dollars on it yes. in addition well, to the fact they're fucking annoying. That's what yes, and that's what I'm getting to. <laughs> oh sorry. <laughs> no no no. I mean, but yeah, that right. Like you just said, he spends like eleven jillion rupees, you know, pal- pounds on this. Uh, uh, you know, it, like because and and this gets to another sort of aspect of his character that I do think the novel sort of orientalizes, which is that he takes hospitality very seriously and and like takes it as a great honor to be able to provide for for guests in this way, even though he doesn't like one of them, and it's going to cost him a fortune to make this happen. So yeah, in, in part because he's like British people are like hummingbirds, and if they don't eat every two hours, <laughs> yes. they die. Yes, he thinks. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. He thinks they need to eat constantly. He thinks they drink constantly too, which is not wrong. But yeah. like, but like when he produces the bottle of port wine in like nine a.m., they're a little weird by it. Um, he thinks that's what they want. It's not. Yes. I mean, no. 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 I know. It's, it's not no, for it, him. <laughs> no. 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 Exactly. It's not for. I know. I mean, he doesn't drink, of course, and it's it it is it is entirely well intentioned on his part. It's just yeah. Um. So, but right, he spends like dipshits. <laughs> They are adding to that. No, absolutely. He thinks they're dipshits and yeah, and they are dipshits and anyway. But yeah, just a tremendous amount of money this poor guy spends. He rents an elephant with a a halda, the kind of like saddled tent thing on top of it, just prepares this elaborate picnic, way too much food, like alcohol. And yeah, because right, he thinks the English are always eating and drinking and that's not untrue. (laughs) And so, okay, but uh, so uh, some things start to go wrong. Uh, One, Fielding is supposed to come, but he misses the train. um, And he's kind of in this like sort of humorous scene running alongside of it as it's departing for the for Barabar. Um, And Fielding blames this on the lengthy prayers of his of of his Hindu colleague who we mentioned, Professor Godbolet. So So wait, I they this is like the moment where I'm like, man, just to Forster's credit, the English really have sticks up their butts because they're like, no one can be late for anything. And like, we have to nobody's allowed Uh to like make a mistake. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. No, that that's right. Um Also, isn't Professor Godbole played by Obi-Wan in the movie? Yeah, I think you're right, although I did not realize that as I was watching the movie because I honestly I would not recognize that actor. Sir uh, Alec Guinness? No, you're right though. Yeah, you're right. Oh, so Okay. <laughs> I mean, I know Alec Guinness was another shit that he's not just Obi-Wan and I am not actually like a Star Wars dude, but Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. No, that's right. Um, uh, and, you know, I think British filmmakers after the movie Gandhi got around to thinking like, huh, maybe Indian people should play fucking Indian. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, again, this is the 80s, right? Like, so, but. No, I know. Uh, but I'm saying that Gandhi was like 1982. So I thought that they had sort of gotten on board, but I am wrong. No, I. that's what I'm saying, right? Like, I no, I like, I, I'm saying the 80s is sort of a late time for that to still be happening. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, the oh. distant past. I'm saying- <laughs> Did they do Othello in blackface until like 2017? Uh, seriously. Do we need to go over the 90s films in which there yeah. are things that <laughs> occur? Yeah, that you're True. Right. You're right. You're right. Um, so yeah. So Fielding and, and Godbelay both missed the train. Aziz is totally running, she, totally running the show. And he, uh, you know, he sort of relishes this, even though he's also very uncomfortable. Um, everything is going okay, not great, until in the first cave, Mrs. Moore gets freaked the fuck out. 
she gets claustrophobia, but she also has like this encounter with the void, which sort of like collapses her entire being and, you know, like kind of sets her on the path to death. It's very strange. So this is, this is that description. The more she thought over it, this is after she's left the cave and she's just kind of sitting there panning in the sun and getting increasingly freaked out. The more she thought over it, the more disagreeable and frightening it became, the crush and the smell she could forget, but the echo began in some indescribable way to undermine her hold on life. Coming at a moment when she chanced to be fatigued, it had managed to murmur, pathos, piety, courage, they exist, but are identical, and so is filth. Everything exists, nothing has value. (laughs) If one had spoken vileness in that place, or quoted lofty poetry, the comment would have been the same, Albaum. Uh, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like the, this fucking echo in this, like, not very big or impressive dark cave has just been her encounter with, like, the negative side of infinity. It's all right. She, she went into the ayahuasca cave unbeknownst yeah. to the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know, but I also sort of love it because, like, everybody else is like, I'm not going to get it. I'm going to see the real India, but I'm not going to have any, like, affective reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah, right. It yes. It is like it it becomes Except for fetishism and so th- this is like a slightly odd divergence from that for me. I agree, although it is then like then what do we do with the fact that that divergence means death? You know what I mean that like Oh yeah, that's that, that, well, that, yeah. <laughs> that it, it is it is like the real has suddenly become like oh, we're not in like Disneyland anymore. We're in the real India. But the real yeah, India yeah. is the negative side of the void. Like that, that is like way fucked up in the other direction. You know That's what I mean? That's true. That's like totally this book though, where it like yeah. constantly has to be both. No, totally. Well, yeah. No, exact and and in another way, it's both things too, because she she sort of develops I don't know not mystical mystical qualities, I would say. Uh people say maybe she can hear me telepathically and shit. And like and um but it also makes her a huge bitch also after to everyone. Yeah. So well, like But a much yeah. more likable bitch than a Adela. Oh yeah. Well, right, but but she just I mean like her and we'll, we'll get to this, but like her ability to like talk to or engage with others is just like destroyed after this. It is very like and she does become like marked by like death in some way. Also, I mean, one thing that I didn't mention, but like I, there is that moment, if, if I remember correctly earlier, where uh, or at some point where, where God Belay is like, oh, yes, yeah, she has been re- like she basically is, re- you know, she's been here before. Like she's kind of on this like th- there's some sort of like spiritual proximity between her and India, but which is very mysterious and i just don't know quite what to do with that um but anyway so but okay. i think that's maybe why i thought this was better than the average novel in high school you know what i'm saying it's like yeah that it's not actually like that doing a straightforward reading is like this is not racist is not right but it's also like oh this is sorry but like this is actually a beautifully constructed novel i agree with that and i think i mean it's not it's not it is it is racist in many ways but it's also is trying to think very seriously about race and racism totally. and, and 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 to be very critical about and i do i mean i i i fucking hate the excuse of like well you have to think about for the time 
but I do think there is an element in which like it is it is just like part of an imperialist worldview that it's trying to be critical of, but it's also like it has a lot that is kind of blocked just by virtue of like the sort of system that produced it. Um, oh, I agree totally. It's like not the same thing to historicize something as it is to like excuse its bad politics. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like no, totally, totally. That's what it's that's all you're doing is just saying like some of our uh, racialized epistemologies change over time yes absolutely but that's not saying like every white woman hated every indian person like that's just how they thought yeah right exactly okay so yeah so she's overcome by the void um and she uh, mrs moore and she stays behind and aziz and adela go on with with the guide and they're just kind of chatting fairly amicably but adela really pisses aziz off um when she it really hurts him um when she asks him how many wives he has and and he's just kind of so taken aback by the comment that he ducks into a cave without her you can just kind of smoke a cigarette compose himself um just loses loses her for a bit and then when he comes out he finds her broken field glasses and sees her in the distance running off to a car with another english woman and she Shit. seriously just like fucks off like nobody yeah. knows what's happened yeah and the guide is beat like the guy doesn't know i think aziz like shoves the guide right because he's he's kind of free like you know what's happened um he so, he's he slaps he slaps, yeah, he slaps come him, yeah. here and then he slaps him yeah yeah and then and so then the guide sort of disappears too which you know anyway so yeah shit uh something's happened and then when they get back to chandrapur aziz is arrested for attempted rape so as you can imagine all hell breaks loose uh the british police go ape shit they start torturing indians and leaning fully into being imperialist psychopaths not that they were anything other and and you know this is then met with a pronounced upsurge in anti-colonial activity among the Indian population, and Aziz's cause is really taken as being a nationalist cause. His his innocence, uh, Fielding firmly believes that uh, Aziz is innocent. Uh, you know, and, and and we have to note that the novel is deliberately ambiguous in on what happened, other than that Aziz is not supposed to have been in the cave with Adela. Like I don't think it is ambiguous about that. It's ambiguous about well then what the fuck actually did happen. I mean, I I. I think that it's more on the side of nothing. He didn't do anything wrong, mm-hmm. but you're right. Like, there's it's also like not really shown. It's just that I think we as a readership ta- are more inclined to take his side. Yeah. Oh, no, I think absolutely. I, I think what I'm saying is like, I think that the novel is clear that Aziz didn't do it. It's just very unclear on what it even is. Like, we know oh, he was totally. not in the cave, but then we don't know what the fuck did happen in the cave. We just know that whatever it was, he wasn't part of it. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the other thing we do know, and Tristan, forgive me if you're going to get to this, but she winds up having, getting caught in a cactus. And so she's covered in. Yeah cactus spines yeah they have to pull them out of her for like two days right i just have some memory of this that i was like kind of no like something physically did happen like she has injuries for sure yeah and and apparently like in early drafts like uh, like well, Forrester did a few, a couple things. One, Aziz is actually convicted of of attempted rape, which you know we'll get to that. Um, does not happen in the novel. In, in the the novel is published, but also like he Forrester described more of what happened in the cave where she is being like physically assaulted by someone, although still not Aziz. Like, it, but it, but but in the published version, we see nothing of what happened in the cave. All we know is that she was injured, and we see her running away. 
It, it is. works like, better it, this way. Well, it, it, yeah, it construct, it deliberately constructs an ambiguity that I think like, yeah, it is, it's fucked up and weird and like, we should definitely need to talk through. Well, through and it centers this thing that you've been uh, talking about, Tristan, which is the misreading between, but I also think it's like even more something like illegibility between Indian and British colonial characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. I agree. So yeah, so so well, and fielding and taking Aziz aside, he he kind of ostracizes himself, gets ostracized from the rest of the British. Uh, uh, Mrs. Moore also doesn't believe uh, Adela. Uh, you know, she, she doesn't believe that Aziz did this. But as we've said, she's just increasingly apathetic and hostile to like everyone. Like there, she's like, I'm not testifying at the trial one way or the other. I want to go home. So she sails back for England and dies at sea. Like and becomes kind of a martyr among the Indians who think she's been, and they're not wrong that she's just kind of shipped off. And then, like, shoved off the boat. Like, just, they just shove her off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. There's that she's been kind of murdered, is the like rumor among the kind of the the Indian nationalists. Um, But Adela eventually recants on the witness stand. Uh, Like, as she's being examined, she just says that, you know, she recalls that Aziz didn't enter the cave with her. So Aziz is freed, and Adela is then in turn shunned by the British. Uh, and, And Fielding. And this is, again, interesting and weird uh, and fraught. Um, He gets drawn closer and closer to her. Like, he's supposed to be following Aziz to, like, the basically the victory party. But he, you know, sort of helps her get away from a crowd that he fears is going to be hostile and just becomes more sympathetic to her and eventually. Yeah, he, like, hides her. He hides her. He hides her at the college. He convinces Aziz not to sue her for damages, which Aziz very much feels is a betrayal. Um, like it kind of destroys their their friendship. Uh, last section, very. Wait, quickly. am I wrong for reading that as the opposite? Tell me if I just read that wrong. I thought Aziz didn't want to sue her. He doesn't when Fielding invokes Mrs. Moore and yeah. says, "Got it, okay." Yeah. He like he wanted to. And well, he initially when he's, I mean, uh, you know, very angry. He's like, "Yes, I, you know, my basically my character's been ruined." Right. And then he's like more, he's like, well, she apologizes. And then finally Fielding deploys the memory of Mrs. Moore, like she wouldn't want you to do this. And this is right, right, like, right. okay. But he, he takes that as, as like, you know, a kind of real insult and betrayal of friendship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so finally, last section called Temple. It's a couple years later, and Aziz has moved far to the west to a predominantly Hindu state. Uh, Mao. It's it, this is interesting. So Mao, which is the new setting, uh, that is real. It's like this. It's this um, this area in the the Himalayan region, um, which is it's strange that the real enters in a way like because Chandrapur is not real. I don't know quite what to make of that. But so Aziz is the doctor to the state's Raja. He hasn't spoken to Fielding since Fielding returned to England, right, basically right around the time of the trial. Uh, and he thinks Fielding married Adela. Uh, he didn't. Fielding, in fact, married Heslop's half-sister, Stella. And when Aziz learns this, they they reconcile. Like He basically had been ripping up all of his letters because he thought that this had happened. But now he's like, oh, okay. And so Fielding comes to visit Aziz, uh, which is when all this gets cleared up uh, for the last time. Quote, socially, they had no meeting place. He, e. Fielding had thrown in his lot with Anglo-India by marrying a countrywoman. And the novel ends with Aziz and Fielding embracing and Fielding asking why they can't be friends. Uh, and I thought I would just, 
I thought I would just read read this bit. So first of all, they're they're going back and forth over India being a nation and Fielding thinks that that's you know oh that's absurd and Aziz is getting madder. Aziz in an awful rage danced this way and that, not knowing what to do, and cried, "Down with the English, anyhow! That's certain. Clear out, you fellows! Double quick! I say, we may hate one another, but we hate you most. If I don't make you go, Ahmed will, Karim will. If it's five hundred, if it's fifty-five hundred years, we shall get rid of you. Yes, we shall drive every blasted Englishman into the sea." And then he wrote himself, uh, or sorry, he wrote against him furiously. And then he concluded, half kissing him, "You and I shall be friends." Why can't we be friends now? Said the other, holding him affectionately. It's what I want. It's what you want. But the horses didn't want it. They swerved apart. The earth didn't want it, sending up rocks through which riders must pass single file. The temples, the tank, the jail, the palace, the birds, the carrion, the guest house that came into view as they issued from the gap and saw Mal beneath. They didn't want it. They said in their hundred voices, no, not yet. And the sky said, no, not there. <laughs> it's good. It's well written. I mean, it's it not is. good, whatever. It's very well written, but it's like, Katie, you were saying in the notes, it's like, the sky wants us to be racist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you can argue on the finer points of friendship against what your horse wants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, it's just that, you know, it's, it's out of the, it's really out of the hands of the people. It's just like a natural phenomenon that they can't be friends. It's in the hooves of the horses now. That's why it is liberal imperialism, right? It's like- it, oh, yeah. it it knows the bad effects of the structure and it thinks they're bad and it wants to not do those bad effects, but it doesn't fucking see the structure. Right, because it thinks it's like fine if we recognize that Indian people are people. There is definitely room here for the fantasy that empire could be good if it was not filled with racist assholes. Not that empire itself is the racist asshole. You totally. Know? 100%. And, and I will just, you know, I, I mean, I do want to not lose track of the gender aspect of this. Like, there is, in addition to the you know, sort of, you know, like background racism of it, there is a hell of a lot of misogyny in this. I mean, even from the very beginning where, where Aziz and his friends are like, oh, like give an Englishman two years here and they all become assholes. And they're like, oh, give the women six months. It's even where, you know, like, so there's just way in which the worst effects of empire are put off onto women. And then the fucking like accusation of the attempted rape just what the fuck is like forrester thinking that he's doing with that it's just i i mean it's so unambiguous like what it is that happened to adela why you know i mean like other so i mean is it like racial panic is it you know her own terror about her own marriage to this dipshit that she doesn't want to marry that then oh like so that that produces this rape accusation which is a hella fucked up idea i it's so weird and so upsetting. I just, I'm curious. And even though I just said that, like, it structurally works well as a novel, I'm going to go right against my own claim and say, like, this is some, like, weird fucking Perry Mason bullshit to show up in the middle of this novel. Like, yeah. not not the accusation, but, the, like, how much of a trial do I have to go through in the middle of a goddamn novel? I think one way to read it, which is sort of the way that I kind of did, is that she's taken into a car with some lady who I believe is sort of a B word. And my sense is that she may have said Aziz and then she's staying with this family and we don't get anything. We don't actually ever get her directly accusing him. We get like the conversations around it and she sort of flirts with the idea that 
she was mistaken and tries to put that forward. Oh, and, and Ronnie's like, to- there's no way yeah. that you're yeah. that you were mistaken. Right. Yeah, and we do see the sort of weight of the British establishment pushing her in this direction. There's no question. I just think like Katie, if that scene had that you just described had been written, I think I would be much more sympathetic to what this novel's trying to do. Cause we know like panic about like, you know, and 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 like racist panic about like, ooh, like the lascivious other. Like that is such a part of fucking racist imperialism. And like that would have been that actually would have been a really sort of um, complex and you know interesting exploration of that if they if if more if we had seen more of that but we just don't like I think we have to infer it from kind of what you've drawn it like that you know you know we see her like Ronnie being like oh no like kind of pushing her in this direction but it's just it's so ambiguous that it kind of I think undercuts that possibility of it yeah no it does it does I mean and yeah I know I did. I know that I filled in the filled in the blanks myself on that, but it I, mean, I, I, I don't because- want to do so. I mean, I, I think there it, I, but I just think it's like it's weird that it doesn't give us more to do that with. Right. I think in part it does have to do with Adela herself. Like that's the case because Forster's written her as somebody who we wouldn't spend any time with, and he doesn't really. Totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. In order for that to happen, you we would have to have some time spent with her, and we just we just don't get that anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think is happening here is that, like, because she's like quite flat. Part of the snowball effect here is as a result of like rumors, miscommunication, gossip, which the English people all think is like the territory of the Indians. Like that, those are the yeah. people who are gossipy or like. Yeah projecting information in weird ways and it's like no dickheads like decided that that there was no ambiguity about this amongst yourselves yeah right and and the and right and the for the the sort of like imperialist to just conjure this like racist explanation out of out of ambiguity like that 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 essentially like oh like basically indian man alone with white woman what we obviously know as fucking imperialist assholes what this means yeah or even like they do in the, this is a weird move the novel makes try like a lot of people try to say aziz i can't believe like i, I can't believe it you know there are it's, it's not just forrester who's like oh geez i don't know about this but then of course they do fall back on that racist mm-hmm. explanation but then when Adela and, and Fielding are trying to like adjudicate what actually happened several times, I think somebody overhears that Fielding says at one point, like, oh, well, maybe it was, was it the guide maybe? Did anything happen? And then um, I can't remember who overhears and says like, oh, yeah, the, the, you're not in like some limitless probability space of anything could have happened. What you're doing is trying to pin it, uh, find any indian man to pin this on Uh so that's that's our pool like that's your pool of quote-unquote suspects for you is that you'll make evidence around that and that'll be the thing Mm -hmm. so there's like some weird particularization but also always over and above it is like the generalization no that's right i think that's right and 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 i'll say i'll say just a little bit about the kind of the criticism in, in in one second but um but i do think that like maybe what you're saying too like 
let's just pull Mrs. Moore's unsettling experience in the void out of the like, just like, ooh, India is unknowable. And more into like the phobia of like the British person about Indian unknowability, right? It's like basically like the void or the aporia that she encounters is like racist discourse of India and like the blindness of it. Not that like India is at heart on this, like this void. You know what I mean? Like maybe what she sees is like that sort of like, uh, uh, like ambiguity or blind spot in sort of like imperialist discourse. I wonder how that fits into the idea that like, there's a claim made by one of the most outrageously racist characters in the novel who Adela rides to the trial with. And what he's said to be thinking is, you know, golly gee, we could be over here doing our imperialism and racism if only these dumb broads wouldn't keep coming over and fucking everything up. But actually, <laughs> oh, secretly, yeah. this is like the chance to do exactly what we want to do. Yeah. Is that Turton, the the the, the collector or the, the Burra Saab, as he's called? <laughs> oh, God, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, to- no totally. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll say a couple things about sort of the criticism around this, because and then I know we, we got a couple of other things that we wanted to, to talk about. Right. So yeah, Forster had a long life. He was 91 when he died in, in 1970. And so much, much of his writing career was during the height of the British Empire in, in South Asia. And uh, interestingly, A Passage to India is dedicated to this guy, Syed Ross Masood, who was an Indian person uh, that Forster had fallen in love with when Masood was Forster's kind of late teenage student. Um, in, in, uh, it, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does not appear to have been reciprocated. I think Masood's impression was not that there was not any sort of like erotic undertone of this, but Forrester had exactly the wrong idea. And yes, he dedicated a passage to India to Masood. Um, That's pretty weird. I'm not sure that I would like dedicate a book to a, to a like, crush that that didn't wasn't that was unreciprocated yeah i know i mean i and i think they did remain friends for for a very long time but yeah so forrester went to india a couple times uh and so in the 1920s when he's finishing this book he's secretary to a maharaja i think he was like personally fairly critical of the british empire but in a sort of muted serial fielding way uh, so like critical while still participating directly in an empire and sort of thinking that your cynicism about empire excuses it in, in some way. And you should be cynical about empire. Um, so, so uh, about like all of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. There's this one moment where like uh fielding is sitting with all of Aziz's friends and they're like, well, why do you have this fucking job asshole? Shouldn't an Indian get it? And he's like, yes, you're right. I have no good reason to be here except that I was here first. And it's like, dude, no, like that doesn't work as an ex. You can't just like, you can't just yada, 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 or be like, hey, see, I get it's fucked up that I'm here, so I'm cool. Like that doesn't work, you know? <laughs> but, so, and, and yeah, I mean, I, all of like Forrester's biography, I think, is it's useful background to some of the things that uh, Edward Said wrote about Forrester in A Passage to India in particular. So, Said, as I'm sure our listeners know, is, is like one of the truly foundational critics in post colonial studies. 
He's still best known for Orientalism, which is his sprawly 1978 book, heavily theoretical and, and rooted in historical analysis of the 18th and 19th century European empires. Said's main claim in Orientalism is that Orientalism, uh, which is everything from like a literary and artistic movement to this vast racist academic discipline that sort of sought to bring the entirety of Asia under one lens to just sort of a, a general racist attitude about the world, um, that it's first and foremost discursive practice. Uh, so Orientalism supports empire, but it really is epistemology above all else, uh, and that in some ways kind of predates empire. Uh, so Said, like one of his famous claims is knowledge of the Orient because generated out of strength in a sense creates the Orient, the Oriental and his world, so, which is, of course, a very different claim that like like the real Asia, but just like Asia and the East as felt to be known by the West is entirely generated. And, and, and also, also like a way that the West can produce itself as antithetical to that. So like I think a lot about the sort of Victorian adoption of chinoiserie or mm-hmm. things like that, that like really that sort of collection of that fetishism really helps the English know their Englishness, their Occidentalism. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, the, yes the, the flip side of that is the kind of like self-knowledge of the colonizer for sure. And, you know, so at its its heart, there's this claim the West can know, describe, and account for the East in infinite detail. But kind of just to what you were saying, Megan, uh, the reverse is absolutely not the case. The the, the East does not have this kind of epistemic command over the West. It only works in one sort of uh, one direction. And that then, like, you know, the the conceit is that it does, like, read down to, like, Western knowledge of, of the self. So Said's other very famous book, Culture and Imperialism, discusses Forrester at greater length. And I'd say you can see how a passage to India fits into a Saidian account because its critiques of empire really do nothing to remove it, I think, from the discursive system of empire. That's kind of what we've been saying. So this is a quote from Said. Uh, Forrester found a way to use the mechanism of the novel to elaborate on the already existing structure of attitude and reference without changing it. This structure permitted one to feel affection for and even intimacy with some Indians in India generally, but made one see Indian politics as the charge of the British and culturally refused to privilege Indian nationalism, which by the way, it willingly gave to, uh, or gave willingly to the Greeks and Italians. <clears throat> I mean, I think Italian nationalism ended up great for everybody. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, I'd also that, yeah, like na- nationalism in the anti-colonial context, Means something totally different. Very different from, yes, nationalism of the European context, which that's going right to fascism. And yes, so sorry, final thing to say about kind of scholarship around this. There's been a lot of work over the last 20 years or so on liberal imperialism. um, And I just want to plug as as a landmark study, Uday Singh Mehta's book, Liberal Imperialism. The idea here is that far from being opposed to imperialism, a liberal progressive ethos that we get out of the British 18th and 19th centuries in many cases underwrote empire and precisely along terms that Said outlined in Orientalism. So like the idea that the West is modernity and the East is anti-modern or backward and that the West has a moral duty to shrink that gap while always insisting that the gap remains open. Um, This just fueled a ton of imperial ideology, the white man's burden type. And I think that's sort of serial fielding in a way, right? Like, I mean, maybe a little bit more fraught in his case, but that's kind of what he's doing, you know? So, oh, anyway. yeah. I mean, it's different. It's like burdensome in a much more sort of like open ended way, but it's still mm-hmm. burdensome. For sure. Okay. Well, I mean, so I guess just to, to sort of follow on that, one, one thing we've said a bit about, but I just wanted to like kind of note like this novel is very invested in, in, in misinterpretation. 
and and miss like d- deliberately or not between between cultures and kind of across racial lines. And there's this one, I mean, just one example of this that I mean, maybe we can say a bit about, or, you know, we can move on to something else is, uh, the, the first meeting between Aziz and Fielding, which as I said, is very kind of like sort of, there's a lot of homoeroticism there. Fielding's like taking a shower at Aziz standing right outside the door and Fielding's like, oh, damn it. I've lost my collar stay. Cause this was a period when you had to pin down your entire collar and Aziz like gives him his own, pretends that it's not like one that he was wearing. It's like, oh, I just carry a, a, a separate one in my pocket. This like extreme act of like politeness and sort of deference, right? But I think also that gets to like this idea of like hospitality and like what you extend to a friend in like Aziz's culture. Like, so the next chapter, the chapter after this happens, uh, Ronnie, the Ronnie has slopped the racist asshole, arrives at the college and he's mad that Adela and his mom have been hanging out with Indians uh, without him. Any Anyway, and he says this, this is in chapter eight of the first part. Uh, Aziz was exquisitely dressed from tie pin to spats, but he had forgotten his back collar stud. And there you have the Indian all over inattention to detail, the fundamental slackness that reveals the race. Similarly to meet in the caves as if they were the clock at Charing Cross when they're miles from a station and each other. And he's like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like one, like, yeah, it, it, Aziz didn't. I mean, he did have a fucking collar stay. He he doesn't have it because he gave it to a white guy. And but just like the immediate presumption of the imperialist that like, ah, oh, see, this this just confirms everything I I know. But there's like a ton of moments like that throughout this book. I mean, and I actually think that there's like yet another fold there, which is something like, you know, Forrester also really produces a sort of like unified version of culture through Aziz, which is just like this like sort of He's always this notion of hospitality is Mm -hmm. presented as this like um, servile Mm -hmm. thing. And so it's like, oh, of course he would give this person this thing. And of course it would be interpreted like it's interpreted by Ronnie is like, oh, okay, well, this is this is this thing. But it's interpreted by us as readers is thinking like, oh, you know, like Indians are so nice. And like, yeah, this is the liberal. This is the li- right. liberal trope. You're right. You would do the like culturally nice thing. You're right. The, the, the novel wants us to all be like Heslop's fault. But I think the novel itself is implicated in really wanting to read certain sort of cultural practices and beliefs in the most kind of flattering way possible to Europeans. Yeah, totally. And, and also that there's also the elements of the kind of desire between like Aziz and Fielding, you know, as well in that, that like this like uh, oh, and that's yet another thing, which is like, I would give you my fucking clothing. Yes, like this over the top intimate gesture, like when the one guy is like bathing or has just finished bathing. It's there's there's like 50 layers to this, you know? Yeah, and it's like it's, it's only explicable through the 50 layers because parts of it are only explicable that way because it's like, is the point about the collar thing that it's driving at some deeper uh whatever that actually in fact like you know when you see these things that we we run around here and we see what indian people are doing it's actually like what's undergirding all of that is that is the british the invisible british thing that's by taking you create uh, like yeah i'm try i was trying to close read that scene and i was just like ah this could be a lot of different shit 
Yeah. Well, and it's all right. I mean, it's it's important. I think that Aziz is, is wearing Western clothes there as well, like to, for exactly what you're saying. That it's like the the the, the collar stay is that the, the, that's taken as this like symbol, like this important symbol, is itself not. It's not Indian clothing, right? That I and I think that that I think that that is another important valence here. And does he ask him? He doesn't ask him for the. Because it's di- it would be different if he had asked him for it, you know. No, yeah, no, I don't he, think he does. No, he's just like, oh damn it, I I broke my last day, and Aziz is like, here, take mine, and Field is like, oh no, well, not if you're wearing it, but he because you know he's right, he's in his bedroom, and Aziz is like, oh no, I always carry an extra one, even though it's his own, you know. Yeah, it's it's just it's a very like uncomfortable and kind of heartbreaking in many different ways sort of moment to me, but I also think like. Yeah, there's like a fundamental sort of like racist fantasy that's under that is not what the novel thinks it's saying. The novel thinks it's saying is like, look at what an asshole, uh, ra- uh, uh, what a racist uh, Ronnie Heslop is. But it's also being kind of racist with how it like dis- depicts this whole scene, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just like so invested in the liberal notion of culture that it's like that this is like a, a continuity and it's just like a set of values that the Indian holds. Like it's totally. very invested in that idea. Totally. Well, and and I think too, where I, to me the pathos comes a lot from the sort of like illicit desire aspect of it as well. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, that's much more interesting. <laughs> I agree. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think the the sort of racialized aspect, like it goes exactly to the sort of like the the, the racism you were lying out, Megan. It's like, yeah, this isn't that interesting, but it's more like. Oh man, like these guys, like, well, one guy is really into the other guy and we already know the barriers to that, but then, you know what I mean? But then, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's like a, there's, there's just a real pathos here on the surface. Um, Well, and that actually like is more interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that like, there's all this undergirding, which is both the sort of gender, the production of gender and the production of the sort of romantic triangle that's mediated through these women, but also like the undergirding of racial categories and all that shit is like a lot more interesting than oh like but aziz is really nice and it's ronnie who gets it wrong you know yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and i do i mean i do you know talking about it right now i do think that the the sort of most important part along those lines is the the sort of the 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 way in which the liberal imperialist fantasy becomes as racist as the sort of reactionary like imperialist uh, uh position you know but I mean, that's uh, why I wasn't a good high school reader. Because <laughs> it was like hard to see. You like, yeah. also, whomst among us can see outside of liberalism? It's like actually like really difficult to do. It's like yeah. the structure of the world uh, that, that we, we live, live in. in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like how you understand yourself and your. Yeah. 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 I, I won't do my. I won't do a r- real liberalism hours, but yeah. <laughs> To follow the kind of desire aspect, uh, Katie, you had some really good questions about marriage in this novel, which is, I mean, well, Mrs. Moore, like that, this is right before she fucks off from India forever to her death, when she's just like, marriage is the boringest thing in the world, and we pretend like it matters, and I've done it what three times, two times, and it's Mm -hmm. still dumb. Um, But, but yeah, like what Adela and Ronnie's weird not you know yeah what do we think about that <laughs> i would say that the novel is not into marriage maybe i'm making a a uh, maybe i'm making too strong a claim but i don't think this book's uh into it it's not a pro-marriage text that we have read uh no well why it- would we shut aziz's wife in a fucking drawer 
<laughs> so we can be horny for Aziz, of course. And we feel them through Aziz. <laughs> yes, yes. But so the thing that is interesting, uh, you know, the misunderstanding about the marriage thing at the end, because and it relates, Tristan, to what you're saying about the pathos and like these really painful moments is that that Aziz just he just almost out of whole cloth like makes up that Fielding has married Adela. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. there's like no notion that that would have happened, and so, but he gets fixated on marriage as do almost all of the other characters, but in this way that's supposed to, I think, reinforce the idea that human relationships are fucking impossible period yeah. yeah i think that's true of people and their children too because all of those relationships are absolutely cuckoo right like aziz in the in the first part not in the third but like his children live with their maternal grandmother is that right yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's right yeah and then mrs moore uh has her first son who is a dipshit and then her other children live in india and it's like she's going back to see them so like that's another thing is like between parents and children those relationships are impossible and she keeps her children and her two children in england and her like she says this directly and ron like i don't let my two families like basically interact with each other i know <laughs> Yeah. Well, the good, well, the good ones that the novel likes Ralph and and Stella, who winds up marrying Fielding, and that is also so. Like, I do want to bring this up because it was strange to me. So, Fielding, the entire novel, I thought was a much older man than he turns out to be, and it turns out that in fact he is like just crowding forty. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he and he was the, like an and, and when he, older bat like I think I thought his yeah. bachelordom had yeah. been so long standing like that was part of my sort of pinging of like oh right like he's a queer character and we're mm-hmm. supposed to read him like that in a lot of ways but like no you're absolutely right he's not he's my age yeah, yeah. he's not no and the the weird the strange thing is that um so okay although Aziz does say he's been on the shelf a long time. Yeah. Yes. I also I just I want to very quickly fight. There is an older sort of like imperialist uh set of racist bullshit with this specifically as well, in that like at an earlier moment of the British Empire and in Indian back to the East India Company days, you weren't allowed to be an older official in India because it was like we're never going to let an Indian person see an old British person. Like this idea that like the constant the, the conscious presentation of empire as perpetually youthful and like, you know, dick swinging that like well and so I, I do I wonder if like fielding sort of like indeterminate age might in some way evoke that concept at all. I I don't know, which is something I just was thinking as you guys were talking. But so when he finally gets when he gets married, the novel says he's not quite happy about his marriage. Mm-hmm. And the reason for it is that his wife is younger and that he is horny for her and that he feels that this must be annoying to her. Oh, right. Yeah. He He's also <laughs> uh, like, yeah. this can't ever work. This can't ever be okay because I love her more than she loves me and we both know it. Yeah. 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 And we both we both know it. And also that Aziz basically says, well, I I don't want to meet her because I know that it's a proportional relationship between your marriedness and your racistness. And so, like, (laughs) (laughs) that's all Mm -hmm. that's all going up. But we also get this thing, which I think is like the more 
interesting or I don't know, the harder nut to crack, which is that he does say like at 40, he's having his last gasp of passion. And that in part, that's about Aziz too. It's about saying goodbye to Aziz. Yes, yes. Because all of these feminine relationships are just mediations for their coupledom. Right. But his cursed marriedness is the thing that brings him back to contact with Aziz and also separates him from Yeah. Him. Like I I mean, as as much as like fielding throwing in his lot with the British by getting married to one is an impediment, I think the real impediment of the last is like, well, you're married now, so that thing that we had is yep. now over, you know? And it's like and so yeah, so so again, like I mean, this is why we were saying before, like I think this novel is trying to do Eve Sedgwick hours. It's just like not really that aware that you can't just you like invoke like the giant things of racism and empire and still very and still just be focused on the kind of homosocial desire element. You know, like yeah, you're not doing 18th yeah. century sentimental novels. Like it's just a completely yeah. different object. Like you can't just stuff but, it in there. But I think that the novel kind of thinks you could, or at least is like, oh, well, it would be nice if. I I could do that, you know. At the whole ending is weird. Like he tries to put a bow on it in this way that illustrates, I think, exactly that point, which is that as they're talking, they're like, they're like, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's curtains for us. It's curtains for our friendship. Uh, this is the last time we get to hug and kiss in the rain. Um, but at least we'll always both hate Hindus. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also that like there's no lady horse here to separate our two horses, but we know in our minds there's yeah. a lady horse between yeah. our man horses. Yeah. <laughs> there's always a lady horse. Oh man. This is a fascinating novel to talk about and like it's sort of incoherences and uh and just layers of like ambiguity and what the fuck is happening here is like I mean it's compelling. I, I still don't know how I actually think of it like if i like it or not but it's uh there's a fuck of a lot here for sure you know yeah i mean he's not an absolute moron he's just a liberal imperialist and i know that really (laughs) those are sort of the same but like well again as you were saying hegemony you know it's 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 hard to think oneself outside hegemony, although I do not want that to sound as a cop out. Like, so, no, know, it's, it's just, not. It's just that we're all doing it. It's like you can't. It's very hard to see outside of our like ideological positions. Yeah. Um. Yeah. In that ideo- the the ideology of of the game, Katie. <laughs> oh yes. Uh the the dialectic of um the um, shit that makes sense and shit that makes no sense and the synthesis is um. Well, it's not here today, but we're going to play a game anyway. Okay, so I'm going to present you with pairs of quotations. This is like everyone's least favorite part is me explaining how the game works. So I'm going to give you an example by way of illustration or whatever. We've got two quotes. One comes from a passage to India, and one comes from another um, British creation, the television program X on the Beach. And so X on the beach. Can you give us like two seconds of what that's about? I don't even I and I like the trashiest trash. It's literally exactly what it sounds like. And um it's just a bunch of exes who get together on an island and hang out on the beach. Um they're just exes on the beach. And is this a punishment? Like, did they win sort of some 
reverse lottery where they have to be punished? I think it's a reward. Um, it's like a bachelor in paradise uh, where everybody goes. <laughs> so both and a punishment and a reward. It punishes us and rewards the participants. <laughs> um, so we have a part in um, X on the beach where somebody, somebody confronts uh, another person angrily and says, um, did your boyfriend buy you that boob job? They look like lemons. And the equivalent moment, I think, in A Passage to India is when Fielding declines his uh, Aziz's offer to set him up with a nice gal who has tits like mangoes. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the challenge for you two is to so – you're, so you're going to either pick, without knowing which, A Passage to India or the other choice. And you're going to argue which one – is the cooler, more baller thing to do. Okay. Okay. So for the second scenario, Megan, I just want you to tell me whether you want passage to India or the other choice. The other choice. Okay. You want the other choice. So Tristan, you get passage to India and then next time, and then for question two, we flip it. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So you see your ex. What is the first thing that crosses your mind? And Megan, what you're arguing for as the cooler, more baller choice is who? Fuck that guy. You go on reality TV to demonstrate precisely how single you are by announcing yourself ready for anything and then deep-throating several vegetables (laughs) to camera. Cool. Yeah. And and the passage to India is um you see your ex first thing that crosses your mind. We really had ought to tell mother about our lack of betrothal. Um so Tristan, you have a real challenge here. Yeah, why is why is mother the cooler more baller move? It's it's not. Uh but uh <laughs> well, okay. Well, I mean if your if your elderly mother has taken the five thousand mile steamship journey that she's that gonna die on the return on i guess it's 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 cool to tell her about how your girlfriend isn't that into you. i don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh well it's cooler because it's the right thing to do right yeah. oh thank you it's the who's a gentleman here it's the gentlemanly thing to do uh, <laughs> yeah yes. sure so it's the gentlemanly thing to do uh, right before you just pitch her off of the side of a boat. <laughs> so, Megan, why is why is deep-throating vegetables to camera about your ex the cooler, more baller move? Well, first of all, being up for anything is obviously the cooler, baller move. I'm going to go with the other part of that that you said. But also <laughs> that, I mean, I can't go into too much detail because it would be too much even for this show to be like demonstrating the lack of gag reflex that you have would be something that you would certainly <laughs> want to announce on television. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was pretty, that was like, that was gentlemanly in my description, right? I mean, yeah, again, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. knowing yeah, the show that we're on. <laughs> yeah. It's the talent portion. And yes. she engaged and she engaged in it. All right. So I'm um, not sure why you need more than one kind, though. Don't you just need the largest one and then you just need an eggplant or whatever and then you retire? Well, first you do a cucumber for the surprise factor when you're sunning yourself by the pool. Mm-hmm. And then later when you're in the kitchen and you just want to demonstrate to friends and all assembled um, individuals, you then if you just all you have is a banana, you do that, too. <laughs> that's what this lady did cool. uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Her mother must be so proud. Hey. <laughs> well, exactly. All right. R- Roddy, Roddy's mother is proud. No, she's not. She fucking hates him. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, but she doesn't give a flying fuck. And that's okay. Uh, that's way more baller. Now I'm into it. True. True. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think that, Tristan, you put up a gentlemanly fight, but I'm going to give the point to Megan on this one. Um, Fair. Now, Megan, you have a passage to India. Okay, so unfortunately, again, things don't work out. X would like some answers. Is the cooler, more baller move, Megan, that you're arguing for um, from Passage to India to have a conversation that goes something like the following? Oh, why should we quarrel? I think we should keep friends. I know we shall. Uh, Quite so. Okay, that's how you deal with your ex who wants some answers. Tristan, you have the other choice also from uh, X on the beach. You don't answer that question. You yell... I'm going to shit in your bed. <laughs> I don't love you. That's why I split up with you. And then engage in a time-honored masculine tradition and punch a wall. <laughs> uh, so it's more baller to stay friends because uh, because this guy, Ronnie, doesn't have any friends. And so... Oh, you know what? I'm going to change my answer because Adela needs to remind all of us that she's not like other girls and most of her friends are guys. And so that makes her, you know, that makes her exceptional. All my friends are guys. It's <laughs> a strong answer. Yeah, that, that is that is a, a good, good answer. Um, oh, man. Uh, well, how, yeah. Well, I mean, I. I'm going to shit in your bed is a, is that that's a, that is a, a just an amazing, like just almost kind of face. non sequitur thing to, to say, right. It's like, what? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's awesome. That, that is awesome on its face. Also, I mean, there, is there any other way of demonstrating your virility than punching a wall and pretending that you didn't severely hurt your hand and doing so i actually feel like this is the 21st century dipshit way of doing what megan's bit was asked to do and it's like i'm i'm so not mad i'm going to you know like (laughs) i'm going to demonstrate for the rest of my life how not mad i am sir i'm british i couldn't possibly you know (laughs) (laughs) they are all british people in these arrangements as i remember yeah 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 this is true. And nothing reminds us more <laughs> that right, the British um, are the classy people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, the, the, so again, um, are they all from like? Are they all um from from the part of Northern England where you can't understand a fucking word they say? Geordies, Geordies. Well, thank you. I'll, yeah, I'll put it to you this way: the YouTube transcript thought it was French. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, actually. Uh. Point goes to Tristan on this one, and our third question is the most challenging of all. You have to explain, and this is not, this comes from a different British person. We've discussed her before because she fucked a ghost. But anyway, the answer to the question, why did you call off your engagement? Tristan, your passage to India, and the cooler, more baller answer is going to have to be what Adela says, which is both boring, we look like shit, the only evidence of horniness is a light hand squeeze after mm-hmm. a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. And so, Megan, your candidate for the cooler, more baller move is, um, I called off my engagement to a ghost, yes, I said it, a ghost, after we went to Thailand and, quote, he started becoming really inconsiderate. <laughs> and he 
partied too hard. He brought ghost friends back to crash after doing too many ghost drugs. The ghosts all got one of those bowls that Olympians dip their hands in to chalk them up and um, filled it with ghost cocaine. And that's <laughs> what ended our relationship. Yeah, in Thailand. Yeah, th- that's a real thing that a a, a British um, lady named um, Amethyst Realm Nuh-uh. said. Yes. Did she um, make it up? Uh, not if you ask her. She <laughs> she she makes the talk show rounds. This is her her shtick is um saying she fucks ghosts. Oh, she uh, fucks more than to, one ghost. She's fucked many ghosts. I see. Um, yeah, many 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 ghosts, and she seems to be making a pretty penny off of the story. Ghost. So good yeah. for for her. Yeah. No, that's uh. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it is very lucrative tell-alls about ghost banging. Um, yeah, but oh man, mine is just so fucking sad. Also, like, how did the car accident? Like, serious? I mean, like, how did the car accident make them briefly think that they should get married? It, it's the lamest car accident. No one's hurt. They were sitting there having this very awkward ride in the back of the uh, the, the the Nawab's car, and uh, it's like, well, our our knees have touched, and so therefore we must marry. Right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, they hit a hyena. They, well, uh, right, maybe. Adalus said there was a hyena, and everyone else doesn't see a fucking hyena out here. But uh, I think we should just go back to Joseph Andrews, and that this yeah. is baller because it duplicates all the stuff, the motion of the ocean, and Joseph Andrews, where they're staring at each other, breathing heavily. Yeah, I'm just saying if you, <laughs> it, it, that. I mean, yeah, that's true. Well, it is a it's a bumpy road, haha. Uh, but like, <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying that like if you break up. And then immediately get into a car accident. That's probably an o- omen that your initial impulse was right. I would think, right? <laughs> but, mm, yes. So I don't. I, I don't even know that I'm defending my cho- my my answer. Honestly, Katie, you are under no obligation <laughs> to to defend the answer. I mean, you know, I think that uh, uh, you put put up a good showing, old sport. And <laughs> this was a difficult business. Megan, would you like to? Make a run at why um, d- dumping your inconsiderate ghost boyfriend is or fiance ghost fiance. My <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's it's actually equally baller because you would need to go to a faraway quote exotic land and figure out that you wanted to dump your ghost fiance in uh, the context of doing tourism. Hey. <laughs> So, so dump your dump your boyfriend while doing tourism. Advice directly from Better Red Than Dead. (laughs) (laughs) Here, here, that's our new tagline. You know, it's good advice, actually. So it seems like that Megan, you have you have argued sort of for both. Which makes my scientific sc- all the models that I use, the, <laughs> the regressions that I run to determine who yeah. wins, this throws them all out of whack. But we wind up, Megan. What you've done is uh, is shared the wealth, and so in defending yes. both, you have made us all winners. Yeah, that's right. There you go. See, that's a that's good. What a that's, magnanimous individual I am. That's good communism right there. And, that's right. And, Everybody and, gets a piece. And thank you for that because just the painfully awkward relationships between English people in this novel are there really is no defending, you know. Like, I'm not sure the ones on X and the Beach are less awkward. They're just more well um, violent. But, but, but <laughs> awkward with some deep humor involved. I'll take that over just like oh just plain awkward. 
So we were breaking up then. Yes, well, indeed. Well, some gin and tonic, old girl. Yes, okay. <laughs> you need that quinine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or queen nine, queen mini, whatever the British say. I'm going to hide my Love tears as I watch this polo match. Yes. Oh, right. The fucking polo. And on that note, this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Teslasaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to tell us all about breaking up with your boyfriend while doing tourism. Why, yes, it's the most important thing. <laughs> um our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review us and subscribe. We still have stickers and buttons. They're cool. Um, next week, we have Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Minister's Black Veil and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes on deck after that. So thanks, comrades. <laughs>